Okay, we're live. And okay, what's up, guys? John Sentes here, Cutter Nation Podcast 61. We got this thing going. I'm excited. It's one after another. We're knocking out new ones every day, some twice a day. Super excited for this. But um, without further ado, uh, Raj Chaudhary of Synapse, right? Appreciate you having you on. But first, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as mash the like button. Um, and share it on social. That's all I got. Cass, please help us out. Raj, why don't you just kind of give us your little bio, your professional bio, and then I'll come back behind. And I like introducing people how I, I met you and kind of give you my two cents on that. So who are you on LinkedIn? Well, first of all, let me uh, just say thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. I love what you guys are up to. And it's, it's, a, it's an honor to, to, to share some airways with you. Um, my background uh, is in actually professional tennis, and uh, I coached on the Pro Tour for about 20 years, uh, two full decades, and uh, traveled the world about 40, 40 to 42, 43 weeks a year for about 20 years, uh, working privately with uh, professional athletes on the tour. And... Um, that was uh, my passion. Um, loved doing it. Um, I loved the sport of tennis and was pretty much like everybody else, looking for ways to uh, help my athletes improve, stay healthier, stay stronger, and have a competitive edge. And in that process, kind of came along and developed uh, what, you know, uh, what I'm up to these days, which is the Synapse, which is a strength training device and has all kinds of other applications that, you know, these guys at Cutter Nation are exploring and really pushing the envelope with to help their athletes. So it's kind of exciting to hear how they're taking that tool and uh, applying it to what they're up to. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. So um, this was like maybe four or five weeks ago, not too long ago. Um, I had a meeting um, set up because uh, Rue has a synapse. So for those of you that know, we train out, out of Rue Formans in El Cajon. And um, he had a synapse, uh, introduced me to Raj via text. I had no idea what it was. Um, and yeah, it just happened to line up right with the meeting at S10 performance or S10 fitness. And um, gosh, I, I just, it was uh, it was a day where I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go in and I'm going to listen to everything this person says, because who knows? And it was like, it was really good that I was in that mindset because the first 10 minutes of Raj talking to me, I was just, I couldn't believe um, the things that he was sharing with me. Um, so I, I have a, a background with eccentric training. I did hit like, it's like an eighties, like not like high intensity interval trading. Um, not something that you'd see in like a Zumba thing. It's more of like do a ton of machines until you can't do them anymore and then you do a couple more and then a couple more and you're done in 30 minutes. And so that's like an old school eighties hit workout. Um, that was what I had. That's how I had been introduced to eccentric training. I don't know that I had been really eccentric overloaded like the synapse does, but that was my experience with it. So when, when Raj was sharing this with me, um, this is literally, I didn't get shoulder surgery because of eccentric training. Like that's how impactful Ooh. it was to me. And I give right. the credit to Sam Topping every time, because this was literally four sessions with this dude. Um, and that was really the focus was slow it down, time under tension, and my shoulder was fine. It, and obviously it wasn't fixed, but it was unbelievable how much it made a difference. So anyway, not to get too much on that, I knew what I was looking at to a degree. I didn't know, you know, how counterintuitive it was. I didn't know how challenging it could be to like really dig into it, but that didn't scare me. That's the stuff that gets me excited is because that's that makes training fun. Um, so 10 minutes in, I go, Raj, uh, I love, I love what you're saying, but you don't have to keep selling me on it. Cause I just want to be a part of this in any way that I can. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how it was. And, um, then for the next hour, we just kind of went back and forth and yeah, it's, it's just been, it's been really fun. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have, have run into the synapse and Raj, and I'm excited to, to get everybody on the same page of what we've been up to. So um, yeah, back to you. So I actually want to go like, what are you doing in tennis? Because the thing that I am most impressed with, um, and why I wanted you to meet Doug Latta, like now 
is the way that you talk about training and the way that you treat people and the way that you talk and articulate your ideas and how the heck did that happen and how did you get here? So if you want to take me back to your long haired days, um, I'm willing to go there. Um, I've done a little research. <laughs> You've seen some of those long haired days. Yes, I think, I don't know if we all had that at one stage. Um, I don't know if I should reveal that probably everyone my age probably had a mullet stage. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, so, you know, I started uh, coaching, you know, when I was younger and I was starting to play tennis, I started a really kind of a late age for tennis. In fact, baseball was my first sport. Uh, I played baseball and tennis until I was about 15 or 16. Um, and I was a pitcher, actually, but I had zero knowledge, uh, I think, uh, that's advanced incredibly from when I was being coached by my local neighborhood, uh, you know, little league. But um, <clears throat> I shifted into tennis and started playing. And actually, one of the ways that I was financing uh, my pro career was teaching, uh, coaching privately, working with juniors and stuff like that. And so um, I built from there. And, uh, you know, a lot of the way that I went around uh, about my coaching career was really as an athlete myself trying to figure out, well, gosh, what, what do I wish somebody would have told me or how do I wish I would have been coached now that I've gained some more knowledge about the sport or about some of the places where I came up short as a professional athlete <clears throat> and how can I get people to those places that maybe I wasn't able to get to uh, and give them the guidance that they could get. So that's how over the course of my coaching career was literally realizing trying to trying to get clear about what the role is when you're working with an athlete to be respectful of what they're capable of um i learned from some other people of i always loved uh when i was uh treated with that kind of respect and almost my my favorite coaches were the ones that sort of were able to transmit kind of two different tracks which is one like you have this inner genius and you have this ability and two, you're going to have to work really, really hard to expose that and bring that out. And the coach's role, in my opinion, is to give the proper guidance to an athlete so that they can find their own brilliance and find their own path to their own brilliance. Um, you know, there's certain guidelines that can help with that. But, you know, that that process evolved over time. In the beginning, it was, let me give you all the answers. Let me give you what I know. Let me give you all the answers. And over time, that <clears throat> kind of evolved into... Um, let me share with you what we're trying to accomplish and let's come to a solution where, you know, I'm going to let you fail a little bit because when you find your own solution, that's going to be the best solution, you know, that you're going to have because it's yours. It's going to be internalized. It's going to be all yours. It's not going to be something that somebody barked at you. You have to keep track of. It's going to be something that you've earned. And once you've earned it, it's truly internalized and it's yours. And then that holds up. Because there's one thing about training an athlete, in my experience with professional athletes, it's one thing about getting a technique right. It's one thing about getting them to really be able to uh, perform a certain level. It's a whole nother thing to take that performance into a game situation where it's pressure. You know, I don't want to speak you know, out of turn on baseball, but, you know, if you're playing tennis and you're hitting in the backyard, you know, at your local courts and you can perform a skill, that's fantastic. Can you perform that same skill break point down at five, six in the fifth set? That's a whole different ballgame. I assume for a pitcher, you know, you can throw strike after strike after strike with the ball movement that you want when you're standing on the practice field. But can you do that in the bottom of the night, you know, with the bases loaded and up? That's that's the, the big difference. You know, you for me, building that uh, stability in your technique and ability has to be so strong. And then that sort of gap between the good and the great is the ability to do what you're capable of under those pressure circumstances. That's, that's impressive uh, reference that, cause that makes sense. Cause we see guys drop off all the time. You know, it's a, it's a, a thing that you look for in like the last third of the game, you know, starting pitcher mm -hmm. goes seven, eight, nine innings. He gets to the seventh or the eighth and, you know, the ability to stay consistent right there as if it were the beginning of the game. It definitely seems like there's a mental fatigue, I, I guess I could describe yeah. it as, you know. Every time yeah, I well, think about this, I always think of Reggie Miller. 
like three okay. after three after three after three like you know and just and or like the michael jordan tongue out of his mouth kind of in the zone or just like thinking like yeah it's just it's so obvious with the best of the best like yeah. wayne Gretzky, rivera yeah there's I, the the closer i'm not sure if you're or how you familiar you are with baseball but mariana rivera um yeah. all-time saves leader if you think about it like instead of he's just the dominant guy they just threw this dude out in the worst baseball situations ever. Consistently bases loaded, yeah. no outs. Here you go. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. up by one. Don't give up a hit because we'll lose. You know, like yeah. crazy yeah. stuff. And he did it, you know, 700 times. Like it's crazy. On the, on the biggest stage ever. Yeah. yeah. In the biggest city. Ooh. Yeah. It's an interesting thing because that, you know, I think that for me as a coach evolved over time since it. In the beginning, it's all about facilitating people and making them uh, realize that they feel capable, right? Like that, like essentially bringing them to their own level of competence. And after a while, uh, I noticed that that was great. We could get them to a certain level of competence and they could feel great. But, um, you know, people have a misconception about professional athletics, uh, at least in my experience, is that they think, oh, well, uh, you know, as soon as I make the pro tour or, you know, I'm playing at the Grand Slams, I'm it and I can just relax and I, everything's cool. And I think that's backwards. Um, in professional sport, as you progress, the pressure only gets greater. Um, you know, I don't care your contract you signed. I don't care how successful you've been. In fact, sometimes the more successful, the higher the pressure because, you know, Mariano Rivera would be a good example, you know throw him into every bad example that you can find and he produces. So they expect that of him every time he steps on the mat and anything less than that, an abject failure. So I think the pressure on him is less. I think most people are sadly mistaken. That evolved in my coaching career is to say, okay, how do we develop that aspect? How do we challenge people once they're technically stable and competent to really challenge that See if they can maintain that under these different stress. That's the thing that they're going to need to really excel at the highest levels, right? That's the difference. I mean, you probably see it all the time where guys can throw great. You know, they're they're statistical standpoint, they throw as well as anybody in the big league, but they're not in the big leagues, right? I mean, there's so what's the gap there? You know, I you know I can say that with tennis players. I see that all the time where somebody's just insanely talented and you think well there's just no way they could lose but they're not winning match consistently enough top hundreds where is that gap and how do you how do you plug that hole it's always interesting from a coaching perspective so i'm gonna plug yesterday's podcast right now because we were with a guy named steve mcguigan uh facility in minnesota called minnesota mash anybody that's watching you gotta watch it he talked about culture and the way that he treats the kids and the way that they've grown by treating people that way. It's unbelievable. And, um, I, I just like, I've talked about it in my CrossFit gym too. It's like when you, when you make it about the person, it's unbelievable how much what you're talking about can happen. Right. Like it, so they, they've been like very hesitant on new technology. They've been slow on that because it's been all about, how can we make this better for our people in this facility? It was never yeah. like, you know, how can we bring in more people by having the newest, coolest thing? It's like, how are we going to invest in our people? How are we going to invest in our people? So it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting because that has to be underlying. And that's what you're talking about to a degree. But then there's also this other part where it's like, I think Doug has said it is like, there's like 80% that I can help you with. And then that other 20% is like, who are you? Yeah. Right. And like, how comfortable yeah. Yeah. are you with that person? Because if you're pretty comfortable with that person, it's not hard to be on the big stage, you know? Yeah. And it's funny um, as I've just kind of explored these ideas from a coaching perspective, I, I don't know if I brought this up to you, but music terrifies me. Performing music is terrifying for me, but you put me on a mound and it's just so different. John called me out on it uh, about a year ago of just like, Cass, there are some things that you could just like act like you're on the mound and your problems would go away. I'm like, that's one of the smartest things anyone's ever said to me because it's like we have this skill set and we don't always apply it there. 
you know, it's like the kid that's really good at something and then can't test well. Um, they probably could test well if they thought about it differently. But anyway, that's actually a different thing. So yeah, no, right, but I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point. I mean, as far as how to, how to harness that ability and everybody has, you know, there's no one right solution as to how to handle that. Right. I mean, there's no doubt that being technically really, really sound is going to make that transition easier. But that that has that comes to the end of the road at a certain point that if you all of that can get destroyed if you don't have that other skill. Right. So you have to have both skills in tandem. And that's what makes a special athlete. Right. Is that they have the ability to have that technique. They have the ability to um, handle those stressors. And they, you know, in my experience, the, the, the best ones at that are uh, get to the stage where they're able to handle uh, failures and criticisms and understand that that's a stepping stone for them to get better. You know, if they see it that way, then every everything they do makes them better. Totally. It, it makes me think about um, growing up. One of the my favorite movies was um, For the Love of the Game. And there's a scene yeah. in there at the very beginning, you know, where he says, clear the mechanism and the whole stadium disappears except yeah. for him and the catcher. And I always feel like I have these um, instances in my career where I can remember these battles between these batters. Right. And they're my favorite. Right. And what's funny is my brain always seems to remember like my failures more than my my wins. And I think that's kind of what drives me. You know, the, the, I can distinctly remember the farthest home run I ever gave up or, you know, like didn't have it one day, fell off, couldn't throw my pitches the way I wanted. You know what I mean? And so yeah. the fear of that having happening again seems to drive me to be even better and better. Yeah. Now, you know, it doesn't matter who I get in or how many people are in the stands. Like, I just want to go out there and just try to do the things that I know how exactly to do and be comfortable on the mound and have fun. Yeah, I think that, that that movie was actually, I've used that movie as an example with my tennis players because it's sort of like, you know, that clear the mechanism thing, you know, it was like his go-to move and, you know, everything disappeared and he could focus. And But then there came a stage at which it sort of didn't work, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and then what do you do then, right? Because, you know, you know, I was lucky enough to coach some athletes all the way through their retirement, you know, and so watching that arc of how they handle things the bad news is you come to a solution and two years later, that solution kind of doesn't work as well because maybe you're, maybe you're not quite as quick and you have to make an adaptation or maybe you're stronger and that maybe it's even something positive, but you've developed something that changes the dynamic of the way you compete. And so there's always an adjustment of that, of that aspect of how you have to compete. Because that one solution seems great, but then when that one solution, and it inevitably will cause an issue that you have to adapt to, right? And, and that, this and, is and growing is, is, is the big thing. And, and, and from my point of view, that is what baseball has like almost just ignored. The fact that like, oh, you can't adjust your swing. You can't, you can't think about this completely different. Like you have to throw these certain pitches based on your arm slot. Like there's so many things that they don't treat with an open mind um, because you have to be, you, you're constantly evolving, constantly evolving. That's what all of the best ones do. It's, it's so obvious. Um, I have seen a lot of minor league baseball players just fade away. Right. And, and when they do, it's, it's just so obvious. It's like, what did they think was going to happen with that kind of effort? Right. Or mm -hmm. big leaguers that just are there for a cup of coffee. It's like, it's usually not the people that were just dying to do it. Now at the same time, some of it's, this isn't for me, you know, like um, Gene Larkin who we're having on next week, by the way, um, he talks about, he was way more recruited as a, a, a basketball player, but he hated practicing it. So he, mm. he loved, he's like, I could practice baseball all day long. McGuigan brought yeah. it up yesterday too. It's like, if you don't love practicing, cause that's mostly what your, 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 your sport is, is practicing it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so that's interesting. So, yeah, if you don't, if you don't love that, I mean, great example on ten, on the tennis side is, you know, you look at like guys like Federer and Nadal, which are, you know, insane human beings as far as longevity and playing at the highest level. And I remember a year, both Federer did it one year and Nadal did it. Nadal, using Nadal as an example on this one is that he was number one in the world. And by the end of that year, if you were to look, I mean, in my opinion, and probably a lot of other people's opinion, if you looked at his development over that year, he was probably on tour, the most improved player on the tour. 
he was number one in the world and he said, I need my serve to be better. He actually changed his serve motion and he ended up winning the US Open, which was a tournament that That's everyone crazy. said he would never win. Mid-season? Right? Uh, he, I mean, that's tough to decide if he decided that before the year began, but, but he was literally weeks before the U S open, which was again, the tournament that everyone thought he would never win. Um, and he's won it two or three times now, at least, um, he was hitting, you know, he was doing stuff, you know, this is the guy who's the best in the world. He wasn't, you know, we have this idea that they don't do this sort of, uh, very targeted work. He was literally standing on the baseline swing balls and trying to hit the back fence on the fly. Right. Completely anti antithetical to making a serve in the box. Right. It, it has nothing to do. He was trying to figure out how do I get a little more juice on the serve? How do I find a way to 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 get a little more oomph into this serve? And so that's what they did for a while. And lo and behold, he came to the U.S. Open. He was serving at speeds faster than ever. And he ended up winning the U.S. Open. And again, this was when he was already number one. So this is this. is. I mean, for me, that was really kind of uh, demonstrative of the mindset of that kind of an athlete is always to grow. I mean, he's very famous for saying stuff like, I don't go to practice every day to, to repeat. I go to practice every day to learn something, to get better. That's every single day is about that. And you can see with that kind of a thing, if you ever go watch the guy practice, I mean, it's the intensity level is insanity. And you know, there's, there's two different paths. So if I stay on the tennis thing, there's the Nadal who's like the workhorse, just crazy intense. And you got like the Federer who's like this fluid, easy guy. So two completely different paths. But if you watch Federer practice, he's very playful in a, in a, in, um, he, he intends everything that he does. So he looks like he's kind of screwing around, but he's actually doing everything with a purpose. And so he's, he's increasing his uh, understanding a feel of, of how to produce shots in different circumstances. Even if he fails in a weird way, he's always building on that so that when he has to try and hit some awkward shot in some awkward position, he's been there a bunch of different times. He know he's done it and he's done it in a bunch of different ways. So he's got a wide platform to work off of to choose that shot and produce it. So it's, it's interesting to watch that because those are two guys in tennis, for instance, that are continually improving. And that's why they're still, one and two in the world or one and three at the point at this point, whatever it is. So I don't feel like things super easy for me. Um, but when I get it, I'm, I get it. And I've been slowing things down a lot lately. And, um, it's funny. You talk about like him being playful with it. It's like, if I can try to do this with the least amount of effort possible and then like turn up the volume on that, it, it it's been, it's been a different thing. So it's like, um, it just, it's just, I'm just thinking out loud about the difference in how people perceive what they need to do to, to make something happen. You know? Um, anyway, that wasn't actually, I'm curious. I'm curious to ask you guys a question about this. Cause you know, I'm always fascinated by crossovers between sports, right? Like, like I always think it's really neat to learn things from other sports. So one of the things that I found uh, coaching some tennis athletes is that a lot of times we get so so, so narrowly focused on trying to get it quote unquote right or the way that we want. And, you know, I, I kind of liken that to like, uh, let's say I'm driving down to your gym. I'm not from San Diego, right? So I use my GPS. I learned that one way and I know how to get there. And I don't need my GPS anymore, but I got that one way to get to your gym and I've got that down. That's perfect. Cause if everything's normal, I'm going down. It's perfect. What happens on a day when there's construction on the highway and I've got to get off two exits earlier? I'm in trouble because I don't really understand where you are in relation to other things. So I think about that as mapping for like an athlete that I don't want them just to know how to do it the way we want it to be the finished product. I want them to know all the surrounding areas. So if they're over here, they know how to get back to here. They know exactly where they are. So they've got this broad foundation to be able to find out where that narrow finish line is. So they're always, they're not going to get lost very easily. So purposefully we would train in ways that are not the final product that would actually encourage them to understand the difference between certain things. So they could really be clear about uh, where they are and they know how to get quote unquote home from wherever they get detoured to. You know, it's funny because it, I feel like it's similar to like as a pitcher uh, being able to change arm slots on purpose. And mm -hmm. there's this idea in our game that you should repeat your delivery, repeat your delivery. 
But then there's this also thing in training where it's like we should diversify what our body's capable of handling, right? And so if I'm training a different angles and I'm creating capacity in those ranges of motion, that might bode well in a game where maybe I do get a little fatigued, but my body's been used to doing this off balance or something. I'm not saying work to be off balance, but sometimes competition creates that, right? And so that's really interesting. Um, do you find when you try to train guys with different arm slots, do you find that after they've trained those different arm slots, they're actually better at producing the same arm slot when they want to? Well, I think I, I don't, it's a good question. I, I, I haven't done it intentional enough. It's more of like when you throw well. So John and I can go from any arm slot right now. We're close enough understanding throwing that I can go be a shortstop. I can go be a catcher. I can go throw from the outfield. I know how to make the adjustments at these positions, but a lot of players don't, right? And a lot of people don't encourage them to explore those things, right? And so, you know, if you look at the long-term development of throwing, right, the best athletes are the ones that can throw from any position and it's not a big deal, right? And so that's really what I'm saying is a good thrower is a good thrower is a good thrower. Um, and when people decide to be a pitcher, they completely disregard those other arm slots and these other things that just like help you find what feels athletic, right? They lose context to other throws, right? And so that's why, you know, you've seen the baseball world come around a little bit just with the idea of weighted balls. But then, you know, you just have to, you have to understand what you're trying to accomplish. You can't just throw weighted balls and expect to understand, oh, now I get it. Like, it's not that easy. It's just like any tool, right? It needs context and it needs guidance. That's actually probably, let's actually, because we're 30 minutes in already. Okay, Synapse might need a little guidance. You want to tell us a little bit about yeah, your what product? A what a segue right there. <laughs> he just brought it right back in. Yeah. Well, we could, you know, we could chat about all this stuff for hours at a time. So, And we will. Because yeah. this be, isn't be the last time you'll be on. Exactly. There'll be more yeah, conversations. Exactly. So, Synapse. Um, Synapse came, uh, was born out of, uh, basically, uh, essentially what all of us are trying to do is find ways to get our athletes better. Um, I was looking at a bunch of different research. Uh, I did the strength and conditioning for my athletes as well. And I was looking at a bunch of different options or a, a bunch of different research. And I kept stumbling over something called super maximal eccentric loading. That's a mouthful. But what it essentially means is uh, in layman's terms, is on the negative aspect of any movement um, that you're being actually overwhelmed. Like you're you're literally pressing as hard as you can on an upward press, but you're getting overwhelmed in, in your negative. So you're you're the the force is too much. Um, there's all kinds of benefits to that. So connective tissues get stronger. You actually lengthen the muscle belly. You you increase strength and neural drive and neural organization. So I'm like looking at all these benefits, and I'm thinking I want that for my athletes. The bad news about super maximal eccentric loading is this, is if we make the number simple, let's say I can do an overhead press with 100 pounds on the way up. Um, what people may or may not realize is that on the eccentric or the negative aspect, when I'm lowering that weight, I'm about anywhere from 1.3 to 1.7 times stronger than I am on the concentric, which means if I could lift 100 pounds, I could lower maybe 160 up to 170 pounds under control. So the problem with weights is that if I lift a hundred pound weight, it's only going to be a hundred pounds on the way down. And if I want to overload that eccentric aspect of my lift, I have to get two and three spotters and it's dangerous, right? 160 pounds being lowered overhead ends up being a problem. And it's the risk reward for my athletes just wasn't there. I couldn't justify putting them in that kind of risk for the benefits that we were going to get. So I was thinking about how do I, how do I get those benefits? without hurting my athletes. And that's where the synapse was, was ended, ended up being born. So what it allows you to do is it allows you to push up at 100 pounds and then continue pushing up and be overwhelmed on that negative, right? So that I'm pushing up still, but it's pulling me down, even if I'm pushing up at 160 pounds. And there's no weights or bands in the system. So basically, there's no uh, risk of injury in that sense. So I can take an athlete to their full load and it's going to adjust to any athlete at any time. And basically what's happening on that eccentric overload is that you are literally asking for your body to have a higher degree of neural drive. You're preferentially um, recruiting type 2B muscle fibers. So 
just the quick and dirty of that is that those are your fast twitch muscle fibers. So those are the ones that you turn on when you're throwing fast, uh, running fast, jumping, or, or lifting something heavy. So you're preferentially recruiting those. And then you're also lengthening the muscle belly. So what's actually happening on that eccentric load is that the muscles, they work in a bridge. And what they do is they, to, to contract, they actually roll up like this, right? And that's how you contract the muscle, essentially. Each, all these little muscle fibers bridge over each other and they curl and contract. And that's how you're, you shorten a muscle. What's happening during that eccentric loading is when you're overloaded, you're trying to hold on to that link as hard as you can. But what's actually happening is that it's getting peeled open like that. So normally when we stretch things, we, we are generally tugging on the insertion and the origin point of a muscle. But when you're doing the eccentric overload, you're literally the muscle belly, all of those little muscle fibers are being peeled open. So you're literally lengthening the muscle belly as you're strengthening it. So th those are the few of the features that make the synapse pretty unique. It's a tiny little uh, two pound piece of equipment that you can hook up to pretty much anything and uh, kind of have an unlimited weight stack that's always going to match your ability. Just a yeah. curious question. When you say lengthen, I can still be in a ton of flexion and be lengthened, right? So I don't actually have to be in extension completely to get the full benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it like that before. Yeah. So basically in, at, at, at every angle that you're at, let's say you're doing a, let's see, let me get in. Yeah, it's being lengthened. So let's say you're doing a, a bicep curl already right here, right? As I start getting pulled open. There is, there is lengthening at that level, right? Obviously, yeah, 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 yeah. obviously end range is all the way out here, you know? And so when you go to that range of motion, you're gonna be lengthening at that stage because the, 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 the tension on the muscle is not spread out perfectly at every angle, right? There's right. different aspects of the musculature that's gonna be more contracted here than here. So as you go through that range of motion, you're going to lengthen that thing. So, but even if you're literally doing just a tiny bit of movement, uh, let's see, can we get in the camera? If you're doing just a tiny bit of movement, right? Um, that's still lengthening, right? If you're doing that eccentrically with an overload, so depending yeah. on what you want to do. So, you know, the synapse gets used by a lot of different people for increasing range of motion, right? So you might get to the end range of motion. I mean, let's say you're, you're, you're pitching, right? And you want to get at this end range of motion, where, wherever that is, if you're in this position, oh, you can actually load that heavily, right? On both ends, both eccentrically and concentrically. To safely. Safely load it. And the other interest, I mean, it's named this because it has a lot to do with neural, neurological input. So basically, you're teaching your brain under load, you're sending a larger signal to your brain when you're in these extreme positions of, hey, what do you do to control that movement? right? That occurs when your brain doesn't really know how to handle and, and protect your joints on positions under high loads, right? I mean, that's when an injury happens. When you get the repetitive injuries, you get tendonitis, you get those that, you know, I can speak to tendonitis. It's a repetitive thing that your body is not able to handle that force and that tendon's taking more force than it should. That could be a technique issue. That could be a neurological issue that, hey, the, the muscles in your hand aren't turning on fast enough to absorb that force. So that gets translated up your arm into your elbow and causes tendonitis. So if you can load your connective tissues and your uh, nervous system to know how to handle that, to educate, to map out that area for your brain so that it knows how to protect that and keep it under control, the likelihood that you're going to get in a compromised position that it can't uh, handle those forces gets reduced. So you can help prevent injuries in that way. And I think that's what I've been so impressed with, with the, with the synapse, even just with the stuff with S10, like we've talked about. I mean, I don't think people really understand um, just general population, how you can literally train yourself to talk to your body way better, right? You can have such mm. a closer relationship with what you feel and, and what you do. I mean, how many people that just aren't in our world, right? Or just like accept the fact that they don't feel good. They're sore all the time. They have tension yeah. everywhere, right? And it's, they just don't know, right? And so that that's the part where I can't actually get all of them to be interested in educating themselves or listening, but like you put them in a synapse and it's one, obviously contextually, right? But like, it's so cool that that's the part of the training that they get, right? Um, it's just not... 
you can clean yeah. all day long, dude, but you have to want to clean, right? You, you go into, and I love cleaning, right? I love Olympic lifting. I love CrossFit, but like you have to really be aware of what you're doing in these, in these sports, right? If you don't yeah. want to love Olympic lifting, don't do it. If you don't want yeah. to love CrossFit and do and take it really seriously and warm up and prep and cool down and all of that, don't do CrossFit. But yeah. like the synapse is like, well, if you want to get the neurological and the musculature benefits of something and just like minimally do the time, it's like, gosh, it's just, it's for the people who want to work super hard. It's for the people who don't want to work hard at all. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. so cool. That's me. That's me. I don't want to work hard anymore. <laughs> I think you're working plenty hard. I see you guys hustling and getting podcasts and just working hard. Hey, find work, work is relative, right? right now. Yeah, you're exactly. doing. You, yeah, you, you, you're, you. you're just devoting your your energy to something else now, uh, other than yeah. throwing a ball super hard. Even though I bet you can still do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, hey, that's that's but, my favorite. That's that's fitness for me. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing with the synapse is that it. So for me, my my first, uh, you know, I was a tennis coach who educated myself to learn how to train my athletes physically to keep them strong and fit across. This that was what I wrote on here. Sorry, I got to interrupt because I, I had a note. I'm like, you got to tell them why you started strength training. Cause that's also, that's a fun little anecdote. Um, okay. Well, um, so when I first started, things have changed when I first started coaching, you know, uh, 20 some odd years ago, I had athletes that would come to me that had trainers and they were all very nice people, but um, they didn't understand the sport of tennis. And back then it was basically essentially football leftovers that were doing this personal training for these other athletes. And so I'd have an athlete come to me and say, um, you know, I'd say, what'd you do in the gym today? And say, Oh, I did neck curls today. And it's sort of like, okay. Um, it's an important part of the body, but you know, I'm not sure if we need to be doing that three times a week, like that's not relevant to our sport. And then it, it just progressed to where I would talk to these guys and say, Hey, look, you know, my athlete needs to be able to, stop when they're moving to their right and then move back to their left aggressively. And they're just too slow to do that. They're not getting out of the hole fast enough. And, you know, invariably I'd get the response of, well, they're 15% stronger in their quads. And I was like, well, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm not denying that you're working, but it's not translating. I'm not seeing that improvement and I need that improvement on the court. So at that point, you know, it just got to the point where I kind of was frustrated and said, well, okay, instead of, being frustrated, let's start educating myself so that I could do that. And it turned out to be really nice because there was no boundary between what I wanted on the court. I could immediately translate to in the gym so I could have that crossover. And those two, those two work together well. And so that's how I started doing that. And then I took over basically strength and conditioning for all my athletes at, um, at that stage. You know, they were all interested in, in, in doing it that way for a lot of different reasons. So that's uh, that's one of the things that sort of kept me interested as far as building those things in these athletes is trying to figure out ways to to help keeping one keeping them fresh. But the thing about the synapse that was the, the the most exciting thing for me as a coach was that normally I would devote in season two to two and a half hours of of work just for strength training and for tennis. It's a little bit similar to baseball, but not. We have a really long season like baseball does but we don't necessarily play every single day. Baseball does predominantly, but you'll see normally with most athletes, they'll start and their fitness levels up here because they've had their preseason. But as the season goes on, especially in fact, if they're having a good season, it'll actually drop off because you just don't have the time. They need more the recovery to get, you know, between uh, tournament weeks to be able to keep competing. So generally by October, you start seeing people, pretty banged up because they, they can't stay healthy. So the synapse, what it offered us the ability to do was to consolidate that training time into, I, instead of two and a half hours a week, it literally turned into about 25 to 30 minutes a week for my athletes, which was fantastic because for me, strength and conditioning is price of admission for high level sports. You, you got to do it. You can't be, you can't sustain it if you don't do it but you don't want to spend all your time on it. That's not the thing you want to spend your time on. You want to spend your time on hitting serves or forehands or backhands or throwing pitches or, you know, fielding ground balls, whatever it is your thing is, you want your craft to be the most of your time. 
So for me as a coach, I could then, I had about an hour and a half to two hours back in my pocket to work with my athletes on whatever it is they specifically needed, you know, whether it be agility, mobility, maybe recovery, you know, whatever it is that we decide is the right move for them. If you think about that from a pro athlete standpoint, if you put back an hour and a half of time that you get to use productively back in your pocket while still getting the strength gains that you need, that's a huge, that's a huge step forward as far as potential with your athletes. So what did you um, get into more of like how you could use it for technique and like positioning and, you know, if they did, if they were slow out of the hole, how would you strengthen that? So what the synapse lets you do is basically set the force, force vector that you want in any direction. So you can do that. It's very difficult to do that with weights because changing that force vector is difficult. You can use cable machines and stuff like that. Um, we have a couple eight-year-olds that might watch this. Can we how, – how, what's the simplest way to understand force vector if that's not something you're familiar okay, with? Okay, force vector. So uh, let's just say uh, you're – let's say you're – um, you're throwing a pitch, right? So you're, let's say you're right-handed, you're on your right leg, you're going to drive forward. And that force vector isn't actually up and down, which is if you're carrying a weight, that's what you're carrying. That the, the, the force would be up and down because it's gravity. So that force vector would look a little bit like this, right? Or depending on if you're on the mound, maybe it's slightly downward going forward, whatever, you know, again, you guys could speak more intelligently to that than I can, but it's not up and down. So a lot of the solutions that we have would be bands or cables, and those can be set at different force vectors. The problem with the bands and the cables is that you're very limited by how much force you can put on the body in those vectors because, because of the, the limitations of the equipment. What the synapse lets you do is put a tremendous amount of force in any vector that you want so that you can load yourself from that lateral point of view so you're going down and into the ground or you're going up and away from the ground and you can be pulled into the position and you can drive out of that position, which is very similar to what you're going to have to do when you're throwing or running, or maybe you're taking a lead off first and you're going to take off for second, you know, that type of movement where you're going to, where you're going to drive off the ground. And so from a technique standpoint, what you get to do with this thing is you can load an athlete. And when you load them eccentrically, the neat thing about it is that your athlete will tell you what muscles they're turning on and what they feel and they will find for themselves you don't have to tell them because if they're going to generate force they're going to recognize what they need so an easy example of that would be you know like if we if we put you up in a in a semi squat with a fly position and the arm is going to be pulled across your body this way when you do that eccentrically there's no way to do that exercise without stabilizing with that back leg and you will just you can tell your athlete and they they'll be like where do you feel that and they'll say oh well i have to really dig in with that leg and i have to turn that glute on it's like great now you understand so if you want more power in that move where are you going to get it from and now they know they already know you don't have to tell them anymore they've discovered it for themselves through their own body so it cuts out a lot of that sort of like no, that's not quite right. Like get this angle better or do this or do that. Like it takes away a lot of that and it lets the athlete discover it for themselves faster, which I think I said earlier is kind of my favorite thing is when the athlete discovers it for themselves, it's theirs. It's not somebody teaching them that anymore. Now they own it and they don't, in my opinion, a good coach works himself out of a job because the, you, you're needed less and less, right? Uh, because the, the athlete is finding their own solutions and being able to not just learn how to do that one thing, but learn how to do that process, right? So they can, they can, they can do that. You're not going to work yourself out of a job because they're going to realize the value in that. But, but that's the idea in my opinion. So I, I want to make sure that we keep this in like, this is a, this is what I love about it. So before, cause I think it's hard to say something. Um, one of the, this, the, one of the challenges with the synapse is how to use it, how to apply it, knowing how to like, really understand how to maximize it. Um, so do you want, I'll say this, what I have said as a baseball coach many, many times is our game is unbelievably counterintuitive. So what Raj is going to say right now, I see is one of the best benefits of it because there's so many things in our game that are like, Hey, go forward and stay back. <laughs> uh, what? And like when people say your arm is late, your arm is actually 
late because you're early. And it's like, what, what? And that's, that's, I can explain that very simply, but not now. It's just that those kind of things happen on the synapse. And I'm, and as I'm doing, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so fun. But you also need, it's like, yeah, you need it. You need to be, you need an adult there to like help you out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would suggest, so like, you know, from the synapse standpoint, uh, as a tool, it's, it's a great tool for the strength training. It's a great tool for the technique. And in truth, you know, I would advise you guys, if you guys want to check it out, go down to Cutter Nation, you know, when, when this whole thing lifts up and we can sort of interact in person again, get down there because they'll, they'll show you what it can do. They'll show you how it applies to baseball in a way that's probably much more intelligent than I can specifically for baseball. But, um, you know, the synapse does allow you to do things that you can't do with anything else. And that's what makes it unique. Um, it's not just another gadget that lets you do what you can already do if you have the right equipment. It actually gives you the opportunity to do some things that you can't do. Um, and it is counterintuitive. It, it turns a lot of things about how we train on its head. Um, and once you embrace that, you can leverage that to get uh, some gains that you wouldn't get otherwise if you try to use the synapse in the way that we use conventional equipment. It's beneficial. It's great. Honestly, I wouldn't recommend it for you if, you, if you're just going to use it as a straight one-to-one -one replacement for what you're already doing. Because um, it's, it's going to be a little more efficient, but it's not really going to be, you're not going to get the biggest, biggest value out of it. Where you get the biggest value is when you do that exploration and you, and you get the proper education, whether it be sport-specific for baseball or taking the time to understand the principles and then creating from there, that's, that's where the big benefit comes. What are the principles? So the main principles are this, is that whenever we're doing any kind of resistance training, uh, so let's, I, I think I bifurcate that into two, two paths again with the strength and conditioning. The strength and conditioning is one, when we do uh, strength and conditioning moves generally, what we do is we, you know, if we take the press again, we press up and we relax a little bit on the way down. To, to finish the movement. And that has to happen. Otherwise, if we just keep pressing up, the weight will not, not come down until we completely fatigue out. So what happens with the synapse is that you're gonna press up and then counterintuitively, when it's time to come down, you're actually gonna keep pressing up and against your will, your arm is gonna come down. And that's sort of the very unique feature of the synapse. The second unique feature is that it's always gonna be it features something called custom calibrated resistance. So it's always going to match your ability level. So what makes that special is that, so if I, if, even if I tried to emulate that with weight, let's say I lifted that 100-pound weight as hard as I could, and I had somebody pressing down on me on the second one, the problem is, is that's my one rep max. I'd have to put that weight down because I can't lift it again. So I've lost tension in the system, and I've got to redo the whole thing. I have to guess what the next weight that I can use is. The synapse is very unique in that it lets you apply tension to the system and it's time under tension that's constant and it's gonna track your ability level. So I'm gonna press up at 100 pounds and I'm gonna come down at 160 pounds. I don't get to rest at all. I press up again, I'm still pressing up, but this time it's with less force probably, so maybe it's 90 pounds. I get up at 90 pounds and I come down at maybe 140, right? And then my third rep without rest, without taking a break comes at 70 pounds and then maybe down and then I fall off the cliff and I'm probably pushing at 30 pounds and maybe 45 on the way down by the time you're done with five or six reps you've gone to an absolute failure and you're systematically burning out all your different muscle fiber types so it allows you to create time under tension that you can't with something else tell me about the <laughs> muscle fiber types because I know some people are going to know but it's actually very helpful for you to explain it so, you know, okay, there's, uh, there's three major muscle fiber types. There's, you know, there's going to be somebody out there that says, no, 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 there's more, and they're right. There are subdivisions within each group, but there's three major ones. There's your type 1, type 2A, and type 2B. And they have different fuel sources, and they have different abilities. So your type 1 are your aerobic musculature. They use oxygen. Those are your, we call marathon muscles. They last a long time. They recover very fast. They use oxygen and um, they, they recover, sorry, they recover very fast, but they don't produce a lot of power. They're not your powerful muscles. So, I mean, a very non-precise way of looking at it, if you look at a marathoner body, 
they're, they've got a ton of type one muscles. They're not explosive musculature. They can run, they're incredible athletes, but they don't have that explosive musculature as much because they're training that type one as much as they can. Type two A is a combination of aerobic and something called glycolytic. So in your cells, each cell has a little um, reserve safety deposit box of energy. It's called glycogen, right? Normally your, your cells pull in glucose out of your bloodstream to create energy. When there's not enough time to do that, it's a little bit more emergent. You know, uh, you look over and there's a tiger charging at you. You don't have time to turn, burn that oxygen. So your body, oh, I've got this storage thing in my cell, glycogen, and I'm going to burn that first because that really quick. I don't have to process as much. That happens with your type 2A muscles. They're burning oxygen and glycogen. And then you have your third, which is your type 2B muscles, which are your super fast twitch, and they're extremely powerful. They last a really short amount of time, and they take longer to recover. Call those like your cheetah muscles. So a cheetah goes into a full-on sprint, runs at 90 miles an hour, but can only do it for about 10 seconds. And if they catch their prey, they're eating. If they don't, they're resting for the next day because they can't get that speed again for another day or two, right? So those muscles, they burn. They use a couple different fuel sources, phosphate, creatine, and glycogen. Dang. That, so, those are high stakes, by the way. That those cheetah. are high stakes. That's that cheetah. Yeah, they're, they're dealing with that. So most people, when they train, you know, athletes like you guys, when you're pitching or you're throwing, you're going to you you want those type two muscle fibers to be firing and they'll fire. But most people, when they train, they, they usually come shy of those type two B muscle fibers because they only turn two instances, one when you're really heavy or one when you do something very ballistic. Um, so what the synapse allows you to do is it allows you to turn on all those at once. And that's how they normally work. If you have your type two B muscle fibers, your type 2A and your type 1 all have to be firing. That's just the way your body works because it's efficient. If I'm lifting a, one, a feather, my body says, oh, I only need my type 1. I don't need more, so I'm not going to recruit them. If I lift a 10-pound dumbbell, it might say, well, this is a little more effort, so I better go past my type 1s because they'll fail, so I'll turn on my type 2A. And if I lift a 100-pound weight, it's going to say, um, I need to max out here. I need to get everything all hands on deck. So what the synapse lets you do is you push up at – at all your might, and your type 2Bs are on, your type 2As are on, and your type 1s are on. And what happens in the first 10 seconds, your type 2Bs run out of fuel. They, they only last about 10 seconds. Their fuel source gets depleted, and then they fall out. So your power drops, but you've still got tension on the system. So your type 2As are still in, and your type 1s are still on. They're going to last another 30 or 40 seconds. Your type 2As are going to fall out. And then finally, your type 1s are just hanging on for dear life, but they can't churn out enough oxygen in time to keep up with the demand. So they're actually going to fall out and you're going to be, you, you know, by the end of an exercise, you're shaking and you can barely lift the handle, let alone a weight, but you're still under tension at your max. And you've now worn out every muscle fiber type and you caused a demand on your body. It's going to take sometimes three, sometimes up to seven days to fully recover. Your type 2B muscle fibers really will take about seven days to recover. So you've Maybe done this. <laughs> it can. You know, and I've had athletes that are three or four days later, they're like, I feel sharp, I feel good. And I've had athletes that five to seven days later, they're like, okay, now I'm starting to feel like I'm back online with my, like I can really go. So it's a super short stimulus. But, you know, 90 seconds sounds unrealistic. Um, but if you do, you know, you guys have now experienced it and you know that 90 seconds, first of all, feels a lot longer than 90 seconds when you actually it's do terrible. it. It's terrible. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but when you do that 90 seconds, you know, if you think about it from a regular, say a regular protocol of three sets of 10, right? The time under tension that you have with, a, with, let's say I'm doing a curl and how long does it take me to do a curl? Three seconds, let's just say on average, right? Four seconds, let's say it's four seconds, right? and I do a set of 10, so that's 40 seconds. Now I do three sets, four times, four times that, or sorry, three times that is 120 seconds. So that's actually only two minutes of actual work on my bicep, but the stimulus level is far less than if I'm on the synapse, which is my absolute max, both concentrically and eccentrically. So 90 seconds sounds like an unreal number. It's like, oh, there's no way you could get that much work done in that short amount of time. 
really mathematically speaking, even if you compare it as a one-to-one with what most protocols people are doing, it's really close time-wise. It's just consolidated and it's much, much more efficient. And I think what's interesting, you know, he's saying it's terrible and it is, but like, there's also a part of you that can just like, why don't you just try less? Like you could, you could actually go through a workout and just say, Hey, you know what? Today, I'm only going to give it 80%, accept it and move on with your life. And, and you can do that with it. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think you just have to understand your own body. Like nobody's ever done this stuff before. You know, when I was introduced to eccentrics in general, I'm like, Oh my goodness. You know, um, yeah. So every time somebody gets that, uh, they've never had time under tension past, like you said, 30, 40 seconds. Um, it, it fatigues the system. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Right. Um, very challenging mentally too to stay on that long. And then, you know, uh, I remember when he and I were going through it and doing it and, you know, uh, one of the things that I told him that was distracting was he was like constantly talking to me. Right. And so he would tell this or say the numbers and then I would lose focus, lose balance and then have to refigure it out. And so I told him it's actually better if you just use one word here or there and update me so I can focus. And so we, we, I just counted. Yeah. We just we shut cleaned, it down and counted. Yeah. We cleaned it up very, very quickly as far as, and so the more I did it, the more I realized it. And then after my first set, one of the things that I immediately recognized was the fatigue in this X pattern of my body when I was doing that single arm row where I was like, I felt the tension in the back and the arm, you know, in the leg for what I was doing. But when I let go, like it was hard to stand, you know, I had to like walk around for a second. I was like, you know, my, my brain was not, um, my brain was still firing. You know what I mean? It was 30 seconds afterwards. My brain is still going, why aren't you at max effort right now? And I'm like discombobulated on what was going on. So it was very, you know, the, the neural side of what you said was very interesting to me. I mean, and this is the whole, this is the whole martial arts wrestling con, uh, you know, argument, right? Like you get a wrestler or, um, I, I heard Rue told me that hockey players, their VO two max is like unheard of way better than anybody else. But then you look at a wrestler and it's like that dude has wanted to quit after like one period. And then he had to wrestle two more and that, and just got his butt kicked. You know what I mean? So like a lot of uh, sports don't expose that part of, I don't want to keep going right now. And it's like, yeah. oh, you, you can just like give away at bats or you can just like, yeah, whatever, you know, give up on the mound, which I don't know that I've ever done, but you know, you can, and you see people do it. Um, but in those, anyway, so having that in the training fills a void. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So you guys bring up some really cool points that I'd like to, to, to chat about for a sec. One, this, uh, the idea, this, what's different about the synapse is that every other resist, resistance training is defined by the external force that's being put on your body. Here, you're the one defining the force. The user is the person who's defining how much force is being put in. So like you said, Cass, you could use it, for instance, as a warm-up where you go at 50%, but you're the one in charge. You're the one in charge of how much force you're generating. And that's very unique because normally it's like, oh, if I'm doing a weight then I have to pick the right weight or if I'm doing a band I got to figure out the exact right distance and I want to change that with this literally you keep the movement going and you literally can say I'm gonna I'm ready to do more I'm ready to do less the other thing that you were talking about John is that sort of focus aspect um I think it's it's really interesting because it, it I used to say this to my athletes all the time about when they're under stress we start making bargains right? We start, we start making bargains with ourselves. It's like, I know I'm supposed to do this, but maybe this one time I can get away with doing it this way because it feels a little safer, right? Like you just start making these little bargains with yourself that you can get away with. And, you know, in my experience, those bargains really never work. Like it's full commitment or not, right? You're either fully committed or you're not. It's, it, there's no in between and you're going to, you may fall off that every now and then, but you, if you want to be successful, you've got to find the fastest path back to full commitment right? Because you're not, my, my thing with my athletes was like, if they're out there and they're trying to figure out how to, their forehand doesn't feel right and how they're going to fix it. I'm like, we spent two years building that. You are not going to solve that. You're not going to rewrite the book on that in the middle of a match over the course of 45 minutes. It's not happening, right? You're better off literally trusting your training 
right? Of course you have to feel adaptations, but if you're really technically trying to fix something while you're competing, that's a problem. And I've rarely ever seen that become, be successful as a strategy in my athletes. So the, the, that idea of commitment when it comes to working on the synapse is that like you could quit at any time. You, it's all under your power. And the mental discipline it takes to really keep pressing when you feel absolutely shattered, there's value to that, I think, as an athlete. And I would literally use that with my athletes and be like, you know, it'd be 110 degrees in, in Thailand and they had to go and play a match and they're dreading it because it's just, you know, you can't, you know, you're sucking air just walking to the court. And, um, you know, I literally say, is that going to be harder than doing a synapse workout? And they're just like, oh, no, I got this, right? So it, it, it really is sort of like that high bar. And the beauty of it is that no matter how good you get at it, it's going to test you every single time. It's going to push you to your, if you're willing to push to your limit, I don't care how many times you're on it. Every time it's going to reduce you to that feeling of like, oh my God, I've expended everything. And that's, that's kind of the cool aspect of it. That's going to keep tracking you as you, as you get stronger and as you get better at it. The good news is it's going to keep tracking you. The bad news is you're not going to feel like you're, you're not going to feel that improvement because you're going to get shattered every time right. until totally. you go do yeah. your other sport. It, it, it's, it was um, very, you know, it was an amazing feeling to be able to go in and that. And then one of the things that really made sense that you had mentioned, and I remember when Cass and I were training on it, where if you ever feel like you're overloaded, unlike in like a max squat or max deadlift, you can just stop and you're fine. It, so it feels safer. Go to max effort and stay there. And then the longer you're inside that kind of idea on the synapse, it just seems panic, like sheer yeah. panic. Why yeah, I mean, am I like, here right now? Yeah, I mean, I've had my, my heaviest squat. Where was am I? 425. And I remember being like, okay, you know, like, here we go. And there's yeah. this fear, you know, your first six inches as you're going down into it, right? And then that you start flowing, you feel it. And then when you get to the bottom, whole nother level of fear, right? So I think I failed yeah. at it like the first, I want to say five or six times that I even tried it. You know, yeah. where it was like, got to the bottom, gave up, fell out, you know, went yeah. back to it. And thinking about what you're saying, right, that's probably, I just wasted my time, really, you yeah. know, like just doing that idea right there. And so it doesn't even make sense, you know, after, you know, I, and I don't even max, honestly. Well, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm quite certain that most programs are designed to train at 80%. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, that's. That's where they live. And then they test that 90 to hundred every now and then. And, um, anyway, um, so I, this will be a good place to end it. So there is a video of Rue. Um, uh, I just posted it on my story today. It's on the synapse Instagram page. Um, if you don't know who Rue is and you're on Instagram, make sure to go check out my story right now or dig through Raj's page and, um, I didn't know he yelled so much in that. So Rue, the guy that uh, Cutter Nation is out of, he is a big dude. What? He he deadlifts like a thousand pounds. Um, yeah, he's, he's like six, six five, six five. Pounds. Yeah, he's huge. Yeah. Um, and he's just. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, but he's he's a different kind of athlete. So, well, Raj, why don't you um, tell everybody? You know. How do they find you? How do they find the synapse? Um, more information on it from there. And I think, you know, just. Yeah, I'm not rushing off. Uh, give us, if you do want to talk about kind of like where the business is going and how you're seeing yeah, it, sure. um, you you say whatever you want to say about the future of synapse. Um, where you well, can find you. Uh, where you can find uh, synapse is at synapse-ccr. It's, um, it's, it's probably, I, can everybody see that on the bottom? Synapse-ccr.com. Yeah, synapse-ccr.com or Instagram is uh, synapse underscore CCR. Um, yeah, you can check it out there. Um, you know, if you email on that site, that comes to me. So I will, I will respond to you personally. Um, if you guys, uh, if anybody wants to learn more about it, I would highly, you know, from a baseball perspective, I highly encourage you guys to go, you know, get down to Cutter Nation. Um, they've got, they've, they've got a unit down there and they can put you through it and let you, you know, uh, discover for yourself what that feels like and, and get a good sense of it. Um, it's been exciting. Cast is, Cast and John have, uh, 
kind of introduced me to sort of the baseball world as, as an outlet. Um, it's kind of uh, gaining some traction in different pro sports worlds. Baseball is starting to embrace it uh, with some pro teams. NBA is starting to embrace it with some pro teams. And the tennis tour, because that's my world, um, has, you know, a bunch of athletes working with it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I just encourage everyone to give it a shot. Go explore it. Uh, I, I love I, I basically always want people to give it a shot and see what decide for themselves, you know. Yeah. So in San Diego, in San Diego, we have two um, at Rufformance. Right. And then Thank S10 you. has S10 they- Fitness as well another group of great guys that are doing really cool things neurologically as well know how to train people and in new and innovative ways and they've got one there so um if you want to get your hands on one and try it uh get get to cutter nation or get reformance and s10 yeah 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 I, I i'm excited i gotta get him on i don't even know why i haven't called him yet it's uh, it just occurred to me he's yeah, i was just about to ask him, oh my goodness what is going on <laughs> you, you need those guys on you need those guys on there'll be a great conversation a lot of fun, yeah a lot and of i insight. haven't i haven't really got to know dave yet either and i can tell that they seem like a good team so no, well hey we really good. appreciate it um thank you so much we don't want to eat up too much more of your time we got to go also um, this has been really good. I know we'll do this again and I know we'll have some more stuff, but this has been a great introduction to um, the Cutter Nation family directly from you. So we appreciate it. No, um, thanks for having me. Always fun chatting with you guys. Yeah, yeah. So uh, just a couple of things before we get off. Uh, tomorrow is Brandon LaRue. He's a Minnesota guy, uh, kettlebell guy. I was uh, with the Chicago Cubs Um a while back. And then on Thursday we have David Weck. So excited about that. So those are our next two coming up and uh, yeah. So that's what we're up to. Um, Again, the McGuigan one yesterday was great. All of our podcasts have been so much fun. The Jason Uli one is taking off Um, there. We talked a lot about pitch sequencing and like what it is to actually get people out, strikeouts, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, uh, we're having a ton of fun right now. Um, Thanks again, Raj. This is, so this is, I mean, we're, we're getting people from all, all over the place on this and it's, it's just so fun. So if you have any other recommendations on people that we should check out, but feel free to send it over. I and mean, I'm sure, you know, so many interesting people and, and from there. So we're, we're always yeah. down to learn and we love suggestions and stuff from there. So I appreciate it. Again. Well, this is going to be a continued conversation with us. So um, I look forward to that. Definitely. I, right. can't, I can't wait to talk spend with you sometime soon too. <laughs> Stay fantastic. All right, guys. All right, Appreciate guys. it. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks again. Thank you. Yeah, you too, Bye. Raj.